Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. I want to ask you to turn tonight to Mark chapter 9, verse 30. The question tonight is, are you the greatest This was a question that the disciples were trying to figure out back in the 60s. Cassius Clay became Muhammad Ali, and he said, I am the greatest. He was a heavyweight champion of the world. He claimed that he was the greatest fighter that had ever lived, and he may well have been. Today, the greatest talks with slurred speech, has very limited motor skills, can barely get around without assistance, and can hardly communicate. The man who said, I am the greatest, is now dependent on other men to help him get around. Who does God think is the greatest? What is it in the eyes of God that makes a man or a woman great? God thinks most of the man who thinks the least of himself. In God's eyes, the man that he highly regards is the man that thinks the least of himself. And I believe that this is a lesson that the church needs to be re-educated on. We are impressed with titles and positions and honors. We find people within the church who must have power and authority and recognition and prestige. But in Mark chapter 9, verse 33, we find that this is not a new problem. This is an old problem. It's been around since the disciples who walked the earth with Jesus. For in verse 33, it says, And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. There are several characteristics of a great life that I want us to look at tonight. First of all, a great life is a life of service. A life of service. Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of God. As you compare all the gospels, you find that he's been dealing with this issue of the kingdom. And these guys being good Associates, they wanted to make sure they got a position in the cabinet. So they were trying to figure out who was going to be Secretary of State and who was going to be Secretary of Defense and who was going to be the head of the Agriculture Department and everything else. They are trying to work it all out. You see, they had seen Jesus single out Peter, James, and John on several occasions, but in the most recent in their mind was this event of going to the Mount of Transfiguration. They had also seen Jesus single out Simon Peter alone by himself. Simon Peter, flesh and blood, didn't reveal this to you. And I think what happened is, my little holy hunch, is that there began to be a little jealousy and envy and rivalry and ambition among the disciples, and they began to jockey for position, trying to find out who would be the greatest. I want to say this, there is nothing wrong with wanting to do something big for God. There's nothing wrong with wanting to make an impact of worldwide proportions for God. 
when it becomes wrong is when the lust after these things begins to consume a person and they begin to manipulate and position themselves so that they can be seen as great. When it is the desire for the recognition and for the applause and for the accolades of men begins to creep in and the position itself becomes more important than the God that we serve. It's starting to covet another man's position. I think there was a little jealousy. I mean, after all, wouldn't you have been? Twelve guys walking along the road with Jesus the Messiah. And he says, okay, you, you, and you, you come with me. The rest of you guys stay here. Well, where's he going? He's going up to the mountain. And I got a feeling that they were down at the base of that mountain that they could see the light. They could see the glory. They knew something happened up there. And don't you know that Peter, James, and John came down off that mountain and looked at those disciples who could not cast the demon out of that boy and said, well, I'll tell you what, guys, if we'd been here, we could have handled that demon. But we're up there on a the mountain with Jesus taking care of some business. You know, you guys just, well, when you're in a position we're in, you'll understand. A little jealousy. Now, you've got to know, looking at the life of Simon Peter, it's very consistent with his life that he would have popped off about how he could have handled that situation. He wouldn't have been one of those nine that said they brought this boy to us and we couldn't do anything about it. And so there was uh, some jealousy. There was a little bit of envy maybe. And maybe they began discussing among themselves, how do you determine greatness? And maybe one of them said, well, I tell you, I baptized more last week than you did. Yeah, well, you may have baptized more than me, but I cast out more demons last week than you did. Well, I know you guys were casting out demons, but I was over helping Jesus heal the sick while you are doing that. And they began to compare their numbers. Sounds like a group of Baptist preachers, doesn't it? They began to compare. And here was Jesus discussing the cross and discussing the suffering that he must go through. And in the midst of it, the disciples are having an argument. Now, there is a mindset in ministry today, as it was then, that says, if you're the greatest... You should desire the seat of honor. You should be the featured guest at the meal. You should be asked to speak at the Southern Baptist Convention. You should receive an honorary degree. You should be on conference calls. I know that some guys judge their ministry by how many conference calls they've been on that week. They want a monument built to them, some building named after them. You see, when your goal is to be served then the value of your life is placed in who's serving you. That's not ministry. That's not the Spirit of Christ. That is not greatness in the eyes of God. You see, we don't have a pope as Southern Baptists, but we do have preachers who want you to bow to them. And we do have men who play the game and do the right things so they can be in the right places. And we do have a pecking order of who gets to do what. I think one of the greatest stories I heard a couple of years ago was a very famous person in our denomination was having a celebration in his honor. Big hoopla. Mail-outs went out. They invited a thousand people to it. And another evangelist was standing in that big hoopla and he said, they're recognizing him because he's been in the ministry so long. I said, yeah, that's right. He said, well, you've been in the ministry longer than he has, hadn't you? And he said, 
Yes, I have. So how come they've never done anything like this for you? And the guy said, well, that's because he needs it. I don't. You see, greatness is not in who serves you. Greatness is in who you're serving and why you're doing it. These disciples thought that greatness was important, and yet when they stated it in the presence of Jesus, it sounded absurd. I mean, you just think about these disciples. They're walking along and they're comparing notes and they're trying to figure out whose resume looks the best. And they're saying, well, I think I'm the greatest. No, he's the greatest. No, I put my vote over for him. This guy's the greatest one. And they're thinking they're having an intelligent, rational conversation until Jesus says, what are you guys talking about? And then all of a sudden, what was important for them wasn't important to discuss anymore. You know, I believe that most of what we talk about, if we evaluated it in the light of Jesus walking into that conversation saying, what are y'all talking about? It changed the way we talk. If we left this place and all we did this week was talk, like Jesus would walk up and say, what were y'all talking about? I heard you mention somebody's name. Tell me what you said about them. Boy, that'd get revival going, wouldn't it? If what we did, and Jesus walked up and said, oh, what were y'all doing? Now, Jesus wasn't asking them for information. He knew exactly what they were talking about. You can't get 12 uh, Baptist preachers together and them not be overheard. These guys were talking and discussing among themselves about what would be, who would be the greatest. And it says, what were you discussing on the way? And the scripture says, but they kept silent. You know why? It was a silence of shame. Because in the presence of the Master, it sounded so foolish. Turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. <clears throat> Hold your place in Mark chapter 9, because we'll go right back there. Philippians 2, 3. If you want to know what the job description for a great person is, this is it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do what? Nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes into that great kenosis passage where he talks about Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death of the cross. He said, that's how humble you're supposed to be. That you're willing to die to yourself so that life can come out of you. Now, when Jesus taught them and began to respond to them about this issue, it says in verse 35, and sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Now, when a rabbi was going to teach as a rabbi, he would always, if he were going to make a profound statement that he wanted his pupils to remember, he would always sit down to make the statement. Jesus assumes now the position of teacher and of rabbi, and he sits down and says to them, if you want to be first, you've got to be last, and servant, 
of all. This issue's cropped up all the time. It, it crops up in Mark chapter 10 when James and John are discussing whether one's going to be on the right hand or one's going to be on the left hand of Jesus in the kingdom. I mean, they didn't even get the point in chapter 9. They get to chapter 10 and they're dealing with the same issue. Well, they didn't get it resolved there because you go to the upper room and they're all trying to figure out who's the greatest and who's going to get to sit next to Jesus in the picture. <laughs> and nobody wants to wash anybody's feet. They're all concerned about where their position is. And nobody will wash anybody's feet. Oh, listen. Jesus said in John, listen, chapter 13, verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. We worry so much about our positions and about our titles and about if somebody's going to recognize us, and if we're going to have a position on this committee or that committee or this position of honor or that position of honor. Listen, most positions I've had in my life done nothing but gotten me in trouble. We're so caught up. And yet Jesus said, if you want to be great, serve people. Serve people. Give yourself for others. Be a servant of all. Secondly, Jesus said, if you want to be, have a great life, it is a life of sensitivity. Notice in verse 36, and taking a child, <clears throat> he sat down before them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Now, why would Jesus choose a child. Well, a child was a nobody in that time. Children were not highly regarded at the time of Christ. They were treated as insignificant. Children and women were not in any position of, of influence at the time of Christ. He elevated the role of women. He elevated the role of the child, and he takes the child. The one that the disciples said, get those kids out of the way. Don't let those kids bother him. I love to watch kids come down the hall of a church. They are refreshing. I tell you what, they'll break up dignity any day of the week. They don't know what dignity means. I love to be around kids. I like kids. I tell you, the only place you're not around kids is places where it's sad and quiet and boring. I like kids. This place, the decibels in this place go up to about the sound of a jet about vacation Bible school time. I'm glad these buildings are built well. They have survived a lot of children. Jesus brings a child in. He sits him down. Now, why did Jesus choose a child? You know why? Because a child can't do anything for you. You have to do everything for the child. Jesus said, if you want to be great, be sensitive. And by that, I think he used the illustration of a child. A child has needs and a child has wants, and he depends on adults to meet those needs and those wants, to discipline and to train it. You have to be sensitive to a child. You have to watch what you say around a child. You have to watch what you do around a child. And I think what Jesus was trying to illustrate with a child was it's easy to only build relationships with people who can do something for you. 
I want you to build relationships with people that can't do anything for you, that can't help you in any way. But you build them with them because you are sensitive to their needs and to their hurts that you cultivate those relationships that you're never going to get anything in return for it. They're never going to offer you anything. They're never going to provide anything for you. But you just do it for the simple reason that you want to do it in the name of Jesus. That's why you do it. I have a real desire in my heart as a pastor that I never get in the trap that I only play towards certain people because I think they can help me or they can give me something or they can slip me something or they can influence somebody for me. I want to treat everybody on the same level, and that's hard to do. But it is the way that Jesus treated people. The ground's always level at the foot of the cross, folks. Nobody stands any taller at the cross than anybody else. You have to have a spirit of sensitivity. To be somebody in the kingdom, you have to be a nobody. Because that's what children were. He says, a servant of all. That word servant is the word that we translate deacon. Now, he's not talking about the office there. He's talking about an attitude. But John, you know, I'm surprised Simon Peter didn't say this. John said this. John must have said, boy, I tell you, I've heard about all the talk about kids I can stand. I don't want to talk about this anymore. Let's talk about something else. And so in verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to hinder him because he was not Southern Baptist. That's what it says in the original Greek. <laughs> but Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who shall perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. And whoever causes one of these little ones to believe to stumble, it would be better... For him, if a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. And if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire, where neither worm does, does not die and fire does not quench. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to stumble, cast it out. Now, Jesus is giving a graphic picture of the sensitivity we are to have towards sin. And there are some lessons on sensitivity and on service that I want you to see here real quickly as we look at this passage and take this whole lump of Scripture that really could be about three different sermons and try to compress it into four or five points. Number one, if you're going to wear the crown, you must offer the cup. If you're going to wear the crown, you must offer the cup. George Whitfield said, Heavenly Father... For thy dear son's sake, keep me from climbing. You know who great men are? Great men are men who never thought they were great. You know why God's hand has been on Billy Graham all these years? Because he's still just a kid from North Carolina that's never forgotten where he came from. He's been a humble servant of God. Great men never know they're great. They never put on airs. They never have people walking around to tell you that they're great. 
You just know they're great because they've given a cup of water in Jesus' name. Secondly, choices make or break you in the Christian life. Choices make or break you in the Christian life. He talks about if your hand causes you to stumble, if your foot causes you to stumble, if your eye causes you to stumble, your choices of friends, your choices of associates, your choices of job, of attitude, all of those things can make or break you in the Christian life. What you set your mind to do, you become. I can tell you where you are in your Christian life by the choices you make. Number four. Number three. Don't despise or oppose what you don't understand. Don't despise or oppose what you don't understand. God is bigger than your capacity to explain Him. Don't despise or oppose what you do not understand because God is not bound to our way of describing Him. He's not bound to our way of seeing how He works. Now, I'm not talking about apathetic acceptance here. What I'm talking about, when He talks about the disciples, He says, Do not hinder Him, for there is no one who shall perform a miracle in My name and be able soon afterward to speak evil for Me. For He who is not against us is for us. The question is always, what kind of disciples does He produce? What kind of disciples? What's the product of His ministry? You see, we are never to judge a man by outward appearance or by externals or by education or by denominational affiliation or by credentials or labels. We are to judge a man by the spirit and by the products of his ministry. What is produced? And the hardest thing, I think, for us, because we as Baptists are so strong on doctrine, the hardest thing for us is to remember that Jesus did not say they will know you are Christians by your doctrine. He said they will know you are Christians by your love. That's hard for us. Because we want doctrine to be so straight, we don't know how to love people who have a little bit different doctrine than us. I'll never forget Ron Dunn said one time, he said, it blew my mind the first time I saw an amillennialist lead somebody to Christ. So I didn't know why they are doing it. Has anybody that didn't believe what you believe ever been used of God to do anything? that just blow your mind? Jesus said, don't hinder them. You bless those that minister in the name of Jesus. You bless those that come along. Now, I want you to turn to the verse of Scripture because I think we see an application of this in the life of Paul. Philippians chapter 1 again. Philippians chapter 1. Now, you see what drove these disciples crazy was this man was a believer in Jesus, but he was not one of the twelve. And I think what really drove them crazy, and it's interesting that John would choose this illustration. John says, Lord, he's casting out demons, and he says he's doing it in your name. You know why that drove him crazy? They'd just gotten from a situation where they couldn't cast out demons. And he couldn't figure it out. Lord, how can he do that in your name? We couldn't do it. How can he do it? He's not even in your inner circle. He hadn't been on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's not one of the twelve. How could he do it? You see, God is infinitely greater than any man he uses. God sometimes uses a man in spite of himself. He's done that with me a few times. I figure if God can speak through Balaam's donkey, he can speak through anybody, right? 
I mean, God can use anything. God's drawn a lot of straight lines with a lot of crooked sticks, folks. Now, here's what Paul says, Philippians 1, verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. Can you imagine that? There were some, Paul says, who are preaching because they're envious of me, they're jealous of me, they have strife toward me, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Well, those are tough words. I tell you what, I wish Paul hadn't written that. I'm just going to be honest. I wish Paul hadn't written that. There's some guys that I know that they preach Christ out of envy, and I know that they, they preach out of a selfish ambition. I know they've got a hidden agenda, and I just wish God wouldn't bless them. But you know, God's not blessing them. God's blessing that they're preaching Jesus and God's overarching the preacher to get the message of the gospel out. Now, I don't know how he does it. I don't know why he does it. But Paul says, I'm going to rejoice in it. I don't care why they're preaching. I'm just glad that somebody's hearing about Jesus. Now, that's tough for us. That is a tough scripture for us to take in light of the scandals of recent years. It's hard for me to take. I'd like to correct the Lord here, help him out a little bit to understand what I was going on. You see, these disciples were intolerant, and they were exclusive, and they were narrow, just like me. I mean, you know, you're that way. We think everybody ought to do it just like us. And somebody goes out there, and God begins, you know, I, I cannot imagine what would happen to Southern Baptists if all of a sudden the Methodists became the largest Protestant denomination in America. Or the Presbyterians, God's frozen people. <laughs> I mean, we just, you know, we kind of think we're God's little favorite boys. What if, well, let me just give you this illustration. See, we want God to send revival. We want God to send an awakening. I don't think there's, a, there's an honest, God-fearing, Jesus-loving person in the world that doesn't want God to send revival. We just want to make sure he does it here and doesn't do it down the street. See, we want God to do it with us. Now, wouldn't it just tick us off? Now, let's, let's just, it's just be honest. We don't know who's watching by TV. Let's just be honest. Wouldn't it just tick us off if God sent revival to Albany, Georgia, and he didn't use Sherwood Baptist Church to do it? That'd just gripe us, wouldn't it? After all, we're the best church in town. After all, we got it together doctrinally. We got as loving a church as anywhere. What if God just went to some hole-in-the-wall church where they can't even get the cobwebs out from under the pews and just zap the Holy Spirit of God down on that place and revival happened and people were being saved and lives were being changed and families were being put together? I wonder if we could stand up and say, Lord, bless you that you're doing that there. You see, we want God to bless as long as he blesses us first. Am I getting through? Lord, man, we just want to see you work. 
but just do it with us first. And John said, Jesus, now you let us go over there and you tell that boy to quit preaching. Jesus said, don't you tell him to quit preaching. Why don't you start learning how to cast out demons? Don't tell anybody that you are against us when they're for us. I don't know how God does this, but he does it. He is infinitely bigger than our way of explaining him. I found a lengthy quote from Chuck Swindoll. It says, It is a curious fact that jealousy is a tension often found among professionals, the gifted, and the highly competent. Doctors, singers, artists, lawyers, businessmen, authors, entertainers, preachers, educators, politicians, and all public figures. Strange, isn't it, that such capable folk find it nearly impossible to applaud others in their own field who excel a shade or two more than they. Jealousy's fangs may be hidden, but take care when the creature coils, no matter how cultured and how dignified it may appear. Here's what these guys are saying. Jesus, I don't think you can use him. He didn't go to one of our seminaries. Jesus... I heard him the other day, and I, I, saw, I, I, saw, I know you're using him, but I saw him the other day, and Lord, I, I, if my eyes didn't deceive me, I think he had a living Bible. <laughs> I was in a bookstore in Mississippi a few weeks ago. I was down uh, for a meeting down there for a day, and, and I walked in a bookstore in Mississippi, and I mean this guy was just all over the clerk all over the clerk about a certain translation of the Bible, that they would even sell any other translations if they really love God. Huh. You know what? If we're going to do it like God did it, we would just all learn Greek <laughs> and Hebrew. Lord, how could you use those people? They don't use our translation of the Bible. They didn't go to our seminary. They've got a different style. Found a little poem. Believe as I believe, no more, no less. That I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think as I think, eat what I eat and drink what I drink. Look as I look, do as I do. Then and only then I'll have fellowship with you. A lot of folks in the Christian community just like that. Well, I could chase that rabbit for a while, but it's late and we don't need to go on. <laughs> Number four, don't be a stumbling block. Don't be a stumbling block. Now, the rest, the next two are not nearly as long. Don't be a stumbling block. The word stumble means to lead a person into sin. You can be doctrinally correct. I've met people who are doctrinally correct, but personally, they're a pill to live with. I mean, don't be a stumbling block. It doesn't matter if you can dot every I and cross every T if you have not love. Don't be a stumbling block. Whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for him if he tied a piano around his neck and had been cast into the sea. By the way, that's what that word millstone means. It was, a, it was the rock, the millstone that was used behind the donkey that would grind the grain, and it was roughly the size of a grand piano. Now, it is not insignificant that Jesus used this illustration. You know why? I'm glad you asked. First of all, because drowning was a form of criminal punishment used by the Romans. Secondly, the Jews 
feared drowning because it was a symbol to them of utter destruction and annihilation. One of the greatest fears that the Jews had was of drowning. The depths of the sea, they didn't understand it and it scared them. And Jesus added to their fear to further illustrate the point by saying it would be better not only that you drown, but that you have a millstone tied around your neck so your body never even pops back up. And you see, for the Jew, this was horrifying because then the body could never receive a decent burial. All the ritual couldn't be gone through. And Jesus is using this illustration to say, that's how serious I want you to see being a stumbling block can be. It's serious, folks, if we become stumbling blocks to a child, to a young person. Number five, a great life requires personal sacrifice and personal discipline. Now, Jesus is not literally here talking about tearing out an eye or tearing off a limb or cutting off a foot. He is talking in figurative language. He is using the language of hyperbole. He is illustrating the point. And the, the, in fact, the rabbis had a saying that the eye and the heart are two brokers of sin. What Jesus is saying is, is if you want to have a great life, it's a life of separation and discipline and holiness. Now, he uses three illustrations, the hand, the foot, and the eye. Why does he use those three illustrations? Number one, he uses the hand because the hand represents what you do, your actions. Jesus is saying if what you do, if your actions offend, stop it. Secondly, he uses the illustration of the foot. That's where you go. That has to do with your choices. Jesus is saying if where you go is a stumbling block, stop it. Thirdly, he uses the illustration of the eye. The eye is what you see. That has to do with your desires and your thoughts. And he's saying, if your desires and your thoughts are not pleasing to God, stop them. Discipline your life. To dabble in sin is deadly. And he is saying anything that's in your life, anything that you do, anywhere you go, anything that you think that causes you to stumble or causes someone else to stumble, get rid of it and get it out of your life because it's eating you up. Now, why did he say cut it off? Well, the same reason that a surgeon uses a scalpel. The surgeon, surgeon uses a scalpel in a twofold way. He uses it as an instrument of judgment to deal with a problem, but he also uses it as an in instrument of mercy to save your life. Jesus said you need to allow the judgment of God to come on that area of your life so that the mercy of God can come on that area of your life. You need to allow God to judge your life, to evaluate your life, so that His mercy can be spilled out on you. Now, lastly, a great life is salty. I don't mean saltine crackers here. I mean salty. Verse 49. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Two things about this. First of all, salt was the seal of a covenant. Salt was a seal of the covenant. With the Jewish sacrificial system, the sacrifices had to be salted according to Leviticus 2, verse 13. They were to be salted. Sacrificial salt was called the salt of the covenant. Before the Christian life is acceptable, it has to be sacrificed. 
and sacrifice involves purification. Salt was the seal of the covenant. Secondly, salt was the sign of consecration. Salt was a sign of consecration. It was to prevent corruption. Salt preserves, it prevents corruption. Now, what this means when, he, when it says that salt is, uh, when it says if you, salt becomes unsalty, what will you make it salty again? Salt does two things. It gives flavor and it's a preservative. When you salt something, it gives flavor. My mother can't have anything that has salt on it. She has to cook without it. She has to eat without it. She can use a salt substitute. But you know if you try to salt substitute, it's not nearly as good as salt. Salt adds flavor. Some members of my family think that salt is what you're supposed to eat. <laughs> Wasn't that funny. <laughs> Secondly, salt is a preservative. You know what our problem is? Our problem is we aren't salty. We've lost our ability to flavor the world around us. And the world around us has corrupted us rather than us preserving the gospel in our society. We've allowed the world to corrupt what the gospel should be doing in society. We've lost our saltiness. We are called into a world that has lost its flavor that's bored, that's looking for answers in all kinds of self-destructive ways. And we are to whet their appetite by bringing salt into their life. You know what will make you thirsty? Salt. And when Jesus said, if you'll be salty, if you'll be salt in this world, they will get thirsty for that which you have. They'll want what you've got because they've gotten a flavor. They've gotten a taste of what Christ is all about in you. And he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I tell you, this world needs some preservative. This world needs something to help it in its corruption. I'm just wondering why nobody has said the way that you can deal with the moral issues in America is not handing out condoms. It's teaching young people abstinence until marriage. Why doesn't anybody tell them that? We've lost our salt. We've lost our salt. We are so corrupt that we let a man who slept with so many people, he doesn't know who all he slept with or where he got AIDS, become one of the richest athletes in America and criticize the President of the United States. That's how unsalty we are. And where's the church? The church is standing around twiddling her thumbs saying, oh, it's a terrible world in which we live. Folks, we are never going to salt the world inside this building. We only salt the world when we go out of this building and season this world with the saltiness of Christ. When we put the flavor of Christ in this world and we spill out on this world, then they say, what is it about you that is different that makes you the way you are? And you say, I've been seasoned by the Savior. Oh, I've got something in me that's brought flavor to my life. And how do you do that? You know one of the ways we salt the world? He says it right here in the text. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You know how the world knows that Jesus Christ is real? 
It's because one of the signs of being a salty saint is you're at peace with other brothers and sisters in Christ. The world doesn't want the church because the church has become as corrupt inside as the world is outside. And only when we are at peace with one another does the world hunger and thirst after the righteousness that they see in us. Are you salty? If you want to be great, throw a little salt out of your life this week. Season those people around you. They're corrupt. They need a preservative, something that will keep them from being cast into the pit. And you are that witness. You're that salt. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.